As Floyd mentioned, we're going to start a, a new series today through the book of Hebrews, and I am super excited uh, to, to launch into this new book series. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that it is our, our practice to go through uh, books of the Bible. Um, uh, we believe to exposit the Word of God, in other words, to take out what is in the Word of God and to clearly put it before the God's people is the way that God would, would have us preach. Um, and so we're going to be looking at uh, uh, this book for the next um, probably nine months. And it's my plan uh, to be done at the end of the academic school year, okay? So if you're someone who likes to plan, um, anybody have any idea how many chapters are in the book of Hebrews without looking right off the bat? There is 13 books or chapters, that's right. And how many verses are there? <laughs> There's what? He was guessing. Jeff, do you know how many verses there are? What? You're a student of the word. Uh, no, there's 303 verses in the book of Hebrews. And this is important. When we talk about bibliology, it's, it's, it's what's in the Bible, right? And I'm sure none of you care, but uh, as someone who's going to be digging in and I'll get all nerded out about the book of Hebrews for the next nine months, um, there's about 13,103 words, right? Rafi, did you know that? Oh, you didn't know that. Well, uh, I hope by the end you'll be able to think about the book of Hebrews in a way that's profitable for you, not just because of the information, but because of who it's about. The book of Hebrews, uh, by many, has been tied to the Old Testament Pentateuch, particularly the book of Leviticus and Numbers, because it shows us that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and I think it's appropriate that we celebrated communion uh, the Sunday that we're starting the book of Hebrews. Um, and it, it caused me to think about this, this social dynamic that I read an article this week, and sometimes that's bad for, for a preacher because uh, you start thinking about that. And how many of you have ever heard of FOMO? Anybody not heard of FOMO? It, is, it, it stands for what? The fear of missing out. Is it generally seen as good or bad? It's bad. Are you sure? Is it always bad? Um, you know, people who study this kind of thing, um, did you know that, uh, uh, how, how much time do you think the average, no, I think this is a Westerner, how much does the average Westerner spend on social media every week? Now, I don't, I don't know where they get this. These are people who study this kind of thing. Uh, the stats I saw was about 190 minutes a day, Okay on social media, so you can add that up per week, and it's, it's, it's three hours plus a day. I have a feeling that some of our teenagers, that would be uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, maybe some of you don't ever spend any time on social media, and that's okay, but uh, when they first coined this term FOMO, the fear of missing out, it was actually by a social scientist in 2004. I won't give you his name because you don't care anything about it, but do you know what that coincided with? There was a certain app that all of you have on, or most of you have on your phones, I assume, it was launched in 2004. Anybody want to take a guess? Facebook. 
So the same year that Facebook launches, we begin to study this phenomenon called the fear of missing out. Now, I think that most of us would agree that there is mostly negative things associated with this idea of FOMO, okay? But I want to spin it a little bit when we're talking about the book of Hebrews, and I want to pray, and I hope that we will actually have gospel FOMO, the fear of missing out on the point of the gospel. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So, the title for this series of messages that I've arbitrarily given to the book of Hebrews is The Glory of Christ. This is the systematic theology part, okay, of the bibliology of the study of Hebrews. The Glory of Christ, Our Hope and Comfort. Our Hope and Comfort. The systematic theology is Christology and soteriology, the study of Christ and the study of salvation, the nature of our salvation, because we're going to discover that Jesus Christ, He is, according to the text today, the heir of all things, the creator of the world. He is the exact radiance of the very glory of God. He is the author of our salvation, the purifier of our sins, the second person of the Trinity that came to earth, and he sits today as our high priest at the right hand of God the Father. Listen, friends, if you miss out on him, you have, you have missed out on the most important person in the universe. So you better have a little bit of spiritual FOMO the fear of missing out on the person of Jesus. The theme verse that I've chosen is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, because that our hope and comfort is sort of the practical theology of our theme. Hebrews 10 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but what? But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see, what? The day. What is that day? The return of Christ drawing near. We see that the promise of Scripture is that we live now in light of the reality is that Jesus could come back at any moment. So the author of Hebrews says, what? Draw together in church, encourage one another, so that as we look forward to when Jesus will return, we will be prepared and we will not suffer from gospel FOMO. Because when Jesus does come, we'll say, He's here. I'm ready. I'm prepared. I've done everything that I can possibly do to be prepared to spend eternity with the person of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul said, There is nothing in this universe that you need more desperately than Christ. Do you believe that? Because the author of Hebrews, and we'll talk about the fact that we're not positive who authored, who penned the book of Hebrews, but the author believed that there was nothing more important in the universe than the person of Christ. 
And so when we talk about Jesus being supreme, preeminent, those are words that you're going to find if you read anything about the book of Hebrews, that he is indeed better than angels. That's next week's message. He's better than Moses. You know, there's over a hundred references to the Old Testament. And so the audience was predominantly Jewish or at least Gentiles who are aware of what was taught in the Pentateuch or the law. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron and the entire priesthood. He is the perfect sacrifice. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. And so there is indeed nothing in the universe that we need, that I need more desperately than the person of Jesus Christ. So with that, look at your Bibles. If you have a copy of Scripture, you can read up here if you want. Hebrews chapter 1, we're just going to tackle the first four verses, and we're just going to scratch the surface. So you get in, you dig in to the book of Hebrews. You prove to be a Berean who listens to what the preacher says and says, oh, I don't, is that true? What else is there? I want to take out what's there for myself and for my benefit so that I can not have more knowledge so that I can know Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So let's begin with a question, okay? Do you want to hear God speak? Have you ever said, perhaps in a moment of desperation, God, speak to me. If I could only hear your voice clearly, then I would know what to do. I don't know what to do about my job. I don't know what to do about the relationship that I'm in. I don't know what to do about the crisis I'm facing. My life is a mess. God, speak to me. I have good news. God has spoken. We do not require an audible voice from heaven or even a still small voice coming from our soul. God has spoke. And so three basic points in the next few minutes. Number one, God spoke. Number two, God appointed. Number three, God revealed. And if you want to fill in the blanks, you can, or you can just take it in. Because in verse one and two, the author says long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by who? By the prophets. Who were the prophets? Well, for a Jew, that would have been first and foremost Moses, perhaps Abraham, and even 
the king, David, and you're going to see that next week in the text that the author quotes both Moses and David in the Psalms nine times, in fact. And he's going to prove that Jesus is, in fact, better than angels. He spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God did speak. He spoke through the prophets and then through Jesus. He is not silent. God wants to connect with you and with me. He's just not an idea to be thought about. He is a person to be listened to and to understand and ultimately to enjoy. And of course, we want to obey anyone that we love. He is a speaking person. There is no more important fact than this. There is a God who speaks that we might know him and love him and live in joy and obedience to him. God did speak. Before Jesus came, it was through the prophets. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. For a total of 66, this is the 58th book of the Word of God. God spoke, and He spoke clearly through the Old Testament. Now, notice just a couple of things. It says, by way of the author and the Holy Spirit, that He did speak to our fathers by the prophets. And of good, this picture is of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, whom God called out in Genesis chapter 12. He makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him he would make a great nation. So for the, for the Jew, when he's reading this text, he's saying, yeah, God spoke to Abraham through the prophets. He spoke to us through Moses with this promise. It was fulfilled in part through Aaron, through David, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah. Even in those silent years, you studied that a little bit this summer. Even in those silent years in the minor prophets, you see that God continues to speak faithfully to his people, pointing to the Messiah, to Jesus, who would come. And then there's a transition, because God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, and then what does it say? It says, in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, through Jesus. After he had spoken through the prophets, he raises up Christ. And Christ would be the final word. And even as the prophets pointed to Jesus the Messiah, the apostles and the rest of the epistles we have in the New Testament, they point back to Jesus. He is the final word. He is the final expression. He spoke to his people and he speaks to us. Every time, now think about this, every time I complain that God is silent and that I need God to speak to me, at that moment I should ask myself this, have I heard the words that he has already given me? Is his word sufficient most of us come from organizations or institutions that have doctrinal statements, and I promise you most of them, the very first statement of our faith, which are either affirmations or denials, is that we believe or affirm 
in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. Now, most of us don't have any idea, even if we're native English speakers, what verbal, plenary inspiration is really all about. Well, let me give you a real simple definition, that the Bible we have is the very Word of God, and it's sufficient for our life. 400 years ago, that's what an English speaker would have understood verbal, plenary inspiration to mean. The implication is, is that this is enough. I don't need a vision. I don't need a dream. I don't need someone else speaking into my life. Why? Because Jesus has spoken. If you look at Hebrews 1 verse 2, we find that God has not only spoken, but God has appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. Very curious. We know that he is the creator. Why does he say that he is the heir of all things? Okay, not E-R-R-O-R, okay, to be wrong. <laughs> the heir, the one who will inherit all things. I think it's very simple. The author was trying to point out that Jesus had been promised that the universe would be his. Yes, he is the creator, but if you start in Genesis, we see creation take place within the context of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 17 says that he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were what? Created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why is it important for us to recognize the inspiration of Scripture, that he is the heir. I think it's very simple that we understand that Jesus is the creator. He holds all things in the physical universe together. But if you go to Revelation chapter 5, you have this vision of when Jesus will sit on the throne and all things, all people, all nations will be in subjection to the person of Christ. And his final inheritance will take place. That's why we look forward to the future. We gather together, this is Hebrews chapter 10, and we encourage one another. We stir one another up for good works. We even correct one another. We give hugs to one another. Why? So that we'll be ready for when Jesus appears. He is the heir God the Father has given the Son all things. <laughs> I don't want to miss out on that. I'm not going to inherit anything. You're not going to inherit anything of consequence. Jesus Christ is going to inherit it all. In other words, what is ultimately at stake in this world and in my life is not what's going on today necessarily, though that is important. It's important to us. It's important to God. But what's ultimately at stake is what the future looks like. Not how the past has gone, not even necessarily what's going on in the present, but what the future will look like. And here we find that Jesus is going to get it all. 
And we either stand in subjection to the person of Christ and his name, or we will find ourselves living in rebellion to him. Came across an interesting uh, story. Uh, It comes from Pilgrim's Progress, and you know that I'm a Pilgrim's Progress fan, so just take a deep breath if you don't want any more of Bunyan. Um, Anyone remember the character Ignorance in the story? Veronica is saying, yeah, kind of. Okay, so, so Christian and Hopeful are on their journey, and they run into this guy, uh, Ignorance, and Bunyan's full of characters, and we make application. Uh, and, and when they were coming through the delectable, delectable mountains, they meet Ignorance. And Ignorance was a nice guy. They got along great. He had all the right answers for this road that led to the celestial city. The thing about Ignorance was that he liked to do things his own way. And we lose track of him in the story until the very end. And do you remember when Christian crosses the river? Do you remember what the river symbolizes? The river symbolizes death. And he's welcomed at the celestial city. The door is open, and he's embraced, and he looks back, and he sees ignorance standing across the river. Ignorance had not come through the wicker gate. He was not truly in the faith, even though he had all the right things to say. In fact, when he gets across the river, he knocks on the gate. The doors open, and the king says, I don't know who this is. Bind him up and take him to hell. Shocking way to end Pilgrim's Progress, by the way. But Bunyan knew that there were all kinds of people that thought they knew a lot about Jesus and the church. And history is replete with examples of people who know a lot about Christianity. They have all the right answers. They got straight A's in their Bible classes. Some of them were pastors. Some of them were missionaries. And when they cross the river of death and they get to the other side of the celestial city, the king, Jesus, the one the author of Hebrews is talking about, he looks at them and he says, I don't know who they are. It should frighten us a bit. That's the right kind of gospel FOMO that all of this should be about. I don't want to miss out on who Jesus really is. God has spoke, and he's given him an inheritance. He's been appointed an heir of all things. And then in verses 3 and 4, we find that God has revealed Jesus as our Savior. He's been revealed as our Savior. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. There's all kinds of Old Testament allusions here. Remember that Moses in Exodus 33, when he he asked God to show him his glory? And then Moses hid behind the rock. Why? Because you couldn't see God and, and survive. And the author says, Jesus has just as much glory as God the Father because he is the exact imprint. He is the indention. That's the idea of a seal being pressed down into wax here. Okay, And again, first century listeners, readers would have known that. 
And so the author is saying that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, and he is the Savior. You say, well, where did that come from? Well, it says he upholds the universe by his power after making purification for what? Sins. He went to the cross. He took those that the Father had promised to him, John chapter 14, and he took their sins and he eliminated them. And then he sat down as our perfect high priest, as the majesty on high, being equal with God. There's this Trinitarian picture, and some of you are wondering, well, (laughs) where's the Holy Spirit in all this? Don't worry. If you want to read ahead, go to Hebrews chapter 2. Because God identifies those in the church. Jesus saves them by his work in the cross. The Holy Spirit comes, and what's his job? His job is to put that seed of the gospel in an individual's soul and to sanctify them. The Holy Spirit will be here, don't worry. But to begin the book, the author says God has spoke. God has appointed Jesus as the heir of all things, and he has revealed him as the Savior. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, uh, one of my favorite texts. You go back and underline our word. It says, who gave himself for us, speaking of Jesus, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's why Jesus came. To make purification for the sins of his people. Now, we're going to be able to spend the next nine months or so just unpacking this. I just want to make some really clear application. This is sort of like just greasing the skids a bit. You can go back and you, you, can, you can tear out some of the, the, the nuggets here. But this application is just three real quick. Number one. Everything we need in this life is revealed in Christ through Scripture. Through Scripture, not through some esoteric, Gnostic religion. People have tried that. That's that's where we get Islam and folk Buddhism. Unfortunately, that's crept into even some of those who call themselves Christians. Like, you need some special revelation to be a real Christian. Someone says that to you run after you rebuke them. Everything we need in this life is revealed in Christ through the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Everything we need in this life is revealed in Christ through Scripture. Secondly, everything we desire in this world is only satisfied in Christ. C.H. Spurgeon said, You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Christ. Some of you are sitting here, perhaps you're even a missionary, and you are empty, dissatisfied, and or discontent with where God has put you. I've been there. Always looking for the next thing to make me more successful, to be more appreciated. 
Can I just tell you, that is a bucket with a massive hole in the bottom, and you will never be satisfied with anything or anyone but the person of Christ. You may think you're married to the perfect person. You are not. If you think they're perfect today, they will probably disappoint you tomorrow. I have an exception. Christ is the source of our contentment, friends. Everything we desire in this world is only satisfied in Christ, and it is just a foreshadowing of what we will have in eternity. Parenting won't satisfy it. Marriage won't satisfy it. Good grades won't satisfy it. Getting into the best school or university won't satisfy that God desire that he's put into all of us. Thirdly, everything we do can only be accomplished through Christ for his glory. John Owen, uh, who is probably my favorite Puritan, who is a very, very dead old guy, um, says the duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. You don't have enough in you, and I don't have enough in me to accomplish what God desires. And if you do accomplish something solely in your flesh, can I just say that that's not a God work. That's a Darren work. That's a Tom work. That's a Joe work. God doesn't get any glory from that. And to be just completely honest, he doesn't want it. The only thing that brings true glory to Christ is the acknowledgement that what we have here is God's revealed word to us. And what we find there is Christ and Christ alone. The worship team's going to come and they're going to close in the last song. Um, and then we're going to go and eat. And I hope that there will be good conversation and it'll be encouraging. And I hope that you will... Um, walk away feeling like it's good to be a part of the body of Christ. Can I just want to give one last exhortation? Be about gospel FOMO. You don't want to be ignorance. You don't want to be Mr. Ignorance. You don't want to be the one who crosses the river and listen, we're all going to die. One of our staff members' husbands was in an accident on Friday night and went to be in eternity. His time on earth is gone. He's young. He's got a young family. None of us, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So consider what gospel FOMO is all about. You don't want to miss out on the person of Jesus Christ.